Good morning, DBF Central. It's so good to be here with you uh, this this Sunday morning, uh, and I want to thank the elders and uh, Pastor Manav for the opportunity to be here to share God's word with you. Uh, allow me to pray for us as we look into God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the fact that you are a God who speaks to us. We thank you that even in these times of lockdown where we're all in different places, that we can gather together like this in a virtual space, that we did not have to give up meeting together, but we can continue like this and to learn to, to hear from you into our life, to lift your name on high, Lord Jesus, in music and in song, but more importantly, in the, within our own heart. Father, as we come to your word right now, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would speak powerfully into our lives and into our hearts. And as you speak, O oh God, that you would teach us and convict us, challenge us and change us so that we would be a better reflection of you into the context that you have called us to live in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you've been in a series in the book of Acts and we've been following along even though we're far away uh, and uh, you've reached up to Acts chapter 5 uh, and that's where we pick up this week. But the book of Acts has been written by uh, Luke, one of the followers of, Je of Jesus and one of those, one of those um, uh, early believers in the church. Uh, Luke took it upon himself to write to someone known as Theophilus. Uh, to write a, a structured, documented account to help Theophilus, either to grow him in his faith or to give him a clearer understanding and to answer any questions he would have about the life of Jesus. And that's why you have the Gospel of Luke. And then about the life of the church, the early church. And that's the book of Acts. And in the first few chapters, you find the amazing supernatural work of God that is going on. From the commissioning of the disciples where Jesus tells them you will be my witnesses even unto the ends of the earth. All the way through when, when, they are, when the, the, the flaming tongues come upon them and they begin to speak in tongues. And the church kind of grows exponentially, it explodes uh, in that context. And we find all the amazing things that are happening. Now, keep in mind, as you see 3,000 people coming to faith and you see all the miracles happening and the supernatural things happening, there, there would have been a lot of activity that happened at the time. Luke uh, records all of that and puts together in his account uh, a selection of all that he would have collected uh, for, his, uh, for his writing. All the, uh, the information you have gathered, he puts together only a select uh, few things together in this book. And so the things that he's put together are very important and are uh, put together for a specific reason. And so when you look at the stories of the early church in the first few chapters of how it grew, uh, it leads into chapter 5. You've seen already that the church had 3,000 people added on that first day and then every day the Lord was adding to their numbers. And these people came together on a daily basis and they were enjoying amazing fellowship one with another. They were devoted to the teaching of the Word of God. They were devoted to prayer. They were sacrificial in their love for one another in that they, they even sold what they had and came and, and made sure others had no needs. And they made sure the work of God was flourishing. That's the context 
of chapter 5. And into chapter 5, all the way through to chapter 6, you find a, a whole lot of narratives. There's a whole lot of narratives that uh, tell you about the growth of this early church. Now, I'll be honest with you, in these two chapters, you can preach a whole lot of sermons, you know, a range of sermons, or you could preach one really long sermon. Uh, but I will not be doing that because you've invited me back after a long time, and I don't want to offend anyone by uh, preaching an extra long sermon. But for our purpose today, we're going to look at chapter 5 and chapter 6 through the lens of the lesson, the lessons that God taught that new church, that early church. He teaches them four valuable lessons in these two chapters that they needed to get right, right at the, the start, at the onset of this fledgling, this, this little seedling of a church that was growing. Chapter 5, there's a very difficult story to read. Chapter 5 tells us the story of a couple, Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira were a well-off couple and they had a piece of property, a land that was in their name. And they sell the land and they bring the money as a gift to the church. And as they give the money, they bring the money and they give it to Peter. Ananias comes in, the husband comes in and gifts the money to the church. Peter is upset with him. Peter looks at him and he says in, in, verse, in verse, three, uh, verse 2, it says, uh, uh, sorry, in verse 3, But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And it goes on to tell us, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down, dead, at Peter's feet. Verse 7, after a time gap, after an interval of about three hours, his wife, Sapphira, came in. She didn't know what happened. To her husband and she walks in and Peter asks her, he says, tell me whether you sold the land for this much money. And she says, yes, that's, that's what we sold it for. And Peter says, the same men, the, foot, the footsteps of the men that carried your husband's body out of here, they're at the door and they will take your body as well. And Sapphira falls dead to the ground. Now, Many of you know this story and you've heard it many times before. But in a season that India is in right now, where death has become such a real, real experience around us, this passage becomes even harder to read. Where two people, a couple, are given no chance and they just fall dead at the feet of the apostles. What happened in this story? What is going on in this story? In a season of love and grace and the church growing, in a season where the message of Jesus and love and forgiveness of sin and reconciliation and the beauty of the cross is being preached. What is going on in such a hard to read story? My brother, my sister, remember this was a young church. 
It was a big church because 3,000 people gave their life to the Lord in that first sermon that Peter preached. And every day God was adding to their numbers. And so it was a growing church and it was a large church. But don't forget, it was a new church. It was a new church. It would not have even been a year old by this time. It was a new church and God was teaching his people valuable lessons at this time. God teaches them through this that he is holy. You can't mess with God. You cannot fool him. You cannot mock him. See what Ananias and Sapphira did in this uh, in this event, in this circumstance, in this context, was that they saw everybody was selling their land, everyone was selling their positions and bringing to the church. And it was a good thing to do. And it was something that you could see transformation in people's lives because they were doing that. They were being generous and selfless. And Ananias and Sapphira want to do the same. And so the intention is good. It's a, it's, a, it's a good intention. They were well-intentioned people. They wanted to give to the church. But they wanted to also look pious. They wanted to also look generous in front of everyone's eyes. And so they lie. They say they sold it and they say this is the entire amount we got from it. Here it's yours. But verse 1 told us, or verse 2 tells us, and with his wife's knowledge. So it's very important that the wife knew as well. They both were culprits. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it to lay at the apostles feet and so he's putting forth a piety putting forth a faith putting forth a transformation of life putting forth a generosity in front of everybody that's for sure it's not real he's faking it because he wants to look good in front of everyone. He's faking generosity towards God. He's faking a faith step. Maybe not his entire faith. Maybe he was a genuine believer. And maybe when he felt dead, he went straight to the presence of the Lord Jesus and had to answer for it in a very awkward moment. But in this, we don't know about his faith, but definitely in this step of faith, he's faking it. It's not a complete lie, but it's not the whole truth. He is deceiving. And the Bible tells us that Satan is the father of the deceivers. He is the one who loves deception. He thrives in deception. And here is a new church. People are coming to faith and they are growing. And it's all just young and tender and just taking off. And God teaches them a valuable lesson. He says, listen, your intentions might have been good. Ananias and Sapphira, you could have, if you got a few moments, you could have said, but God knows our heart. God knows how generous we want to be. God knows that we actually, it was coming from a place where we want to serve the church. The intentions are good. God says, listen, I'm a holy God. And as this church begins, you need to understand that. You need to settle that as the bedrock, as a foundational principle in a church movement. God is a holy God. And God expects obedience from his people. The psalmist tells us that you desire, when he's speaking to God, he says, you desire obedience and truth in the inmost part. You don't want deception and lies in the inmost part, in my inner man. You want me to be obedient and truthful in that inner man. 
God is consistently about that kind of obedience. God is consistently not impressed with good intentions when they act as a substitute for obedience, implicit obedience. All the way back in 2 Samuel in chapter 6, you find the story where the Ark of the Covenant has been won back by Israel. It comes back to Israel and it's, it's being brought into Jerusalem uh, or into Israel on an on a, on a oxen cart. On a, and these oxen are pulling it in their cart. And as it comes into the city, it kind of wobbles as the cart hits a stone. And the Bible goes on to tell us in 2 Samuel chapter 6 that Uzzah put out his hand to stabilize the ark. Just in that moment, he saw the ark wobble and it's such a holy thing to them. So he puts out his hand to try to stabilize it. And he drops to the ground, dead. God strikes him dead. Why? He tells us David was angry with God for that. King David at the time was angry with God and God tells him, stop sulking. Because the Bible, God had commanded in the Bible, in his law, nobody can touch the ark of God except the priests. And even then, they had to pick it up by the poles. No one was allowed to touch the ark of God. It was holy. Uzzah had good intentions, very good intentions. There was nothing evil or, 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 or wicked in his heart as he put his hand out. A very difficult story in scripture. But God teaches them that time and God teaches the church in Acts chapter 5 as well. I am a holy God. Your good intentions are not a replacement for your obedience. My brother, my sister, with all the best intentions of your heart, you can pray that the gospel goes out. But the Bible has called you to go out with the gospel. Good intentions in your prayer life are not a substitute for obedience in your practical life. How are you doing in the obedience quotient. How are you doing? Are your intentions all lovely? Are you expecting God to evaluate you based on the, the goodness of your heart? Because God will look at whether you obeyed or not. A difficult story of Ananias and Sapphira. But then the narrative goes on in verse 12. It tells us now many signs and wonders were regularly done amongst the people by the hands of the apostles. And it tells us about all the, uh, the incredible things that are happening. In fact, Peter would, uh, people would put sick, uh, their sick relatives and loved ones on the side of the road as Peter would walk by and his shadow would go over them and, and they would be healed. Incredible things were happening. The supernatural was going on. And in the midst of all of that, the apostles were preaching powerfully, leading many to faith. And this upset the religious rulers at the time, the Pharisees. And so they call for Peter and, and the others to be arrested. Verse 17, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. They don't like what's happening. And then you find, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach once again. 
The Pharisees are confused. The leaders are confused. They try, they, they try to figure out what happened. How did they escape from the prison? And there's this whole little back and forth that happens between them. And then they go and they catch them again. In verse 25, someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and they're teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them. But they were not. They didn't bring them by force for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Because the apostles had been preaching powerfully and the people were listening. And so this time they, they didn't force them. They, they kind of just pulled them away. And they brought them before the Pharisees. Verse 27, when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them. He said, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, in the name of Jesus. And yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. It's like a second trial that they're having with the leaders in the synagogue, the Pharisees. And then... As they start to debate what to do and they want to have them killed, they want to, they, they're trying to figure out what to do with them. A leader amongst them stands up. Verse 34, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel. Now he was a, a, a renowned teacher of the Jewish faith at the time. In fact, he was the mentor of one man called Saul who very soon would become, would change from a persecutor of the church to a proclaimer of the name of Jesus. Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, he stood up and he tells them and he reminds them. He reminds them of two others that came before Jesus and who started their own movements. And he says they came and they started a movement and then they died. And their followers fizzled out. Their followers fizzled out. They didn't last. And then in verse 38 he says, So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let, leave them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, then you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. What's going on here? What is the lesson in this? Why did Luke record this story for us? The apostles, see, when you go through the story of the early church, you find that very often the apostles were arrested. Very often they were arrested and thrown in jail. Very often they were threatened. Very often they were charged to not teach in the name of Jesus. So why did Luke record this particular instance at this particular time in his narrative? Because there's a lesson that the early church learns in this. And it's that God is sovereign. Not only is he holy, but he is sovereign. You find in all of this narrative, God is sovereign over the body. He is sovereign over the health. That's how you see healing taking place. Whenever he wanted, there was healing in the name of Jesus. And then the apostles are thrown in jail and God is sovereign. The angel comes and opens the jail, takes them out, puts them in the center of the city at the temple. And they, the angel tells them, come on, teach the words of life. The jail can't stop you. They thought they put you in jail. It's not going to work. God is sovereign. God is over even this. And all the way through, when a teacher of their own law, Gamaliel, stands up and says, listen, God is sovereign. If this was the work of man, it will fail. It is bound to fail. But if this is the work of God, then you can't stop it. 
you won't be able to stop it there is no way you can stop it because god is sovereign my brother my sister what a powerful lesson for the early church to learn god is in charge it doesn't matter if you're sitting in a prison it doesn't matter if you're doing the supernatural it doesn't matter if you're standing before a council that is trying to persecute you it does not matter where you are god is not lost his control he is still in charge my dear brothers my dear sisters we've been praying for india in this covid time we've been praying and we prayed about the government we prayed about leaders we prayed about you know business leaders and everyone else we're praying and saying god you know do something with them and we acknowledge in that prayer that god is sovereign we see it all through the narratives of the old testament the sovereignty of god all the way in in exodus chapter 9 as moses goes before pharaoh through moses god speaks to pharaoh and then paul would recount those words in romans chapter 9 where god tells pharaoh i have set you up i have raised you up so that i will show my glory through you you find in the book of daniel how god uses a pagan king nebuchadnezzar you find all through scripture you find god is sovereign it doesn't matter who the leader is it doesn't matter if he's a good leader doesn't matter if he's a bad leader god is sovereign god uses and 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 transforms hearts when he chooses god is not a god who loses control for even a moment everything is because of him and is through him and him alone he is in charge he always has been and he always will be in charge god is sovereign and the early church needed to learn that because very soon persecution would break out against them in a crazy way very soon they would be hunted down for their faith very soon the roman state would make it illegal to profess christianity it would be a punish a uh, 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 an offense that was punishable by death to be a christian and the early church needed to learn this lesson well that god is holy but that god is sovereign god is in charge and god teaches them that lesson through different ways through the apostles teaching and through even the apostles experience god teaches them he is sovereign and then we go to chapter 6 and you find an interesting narrative in chapter 6 Chapter 6 and verse 1 Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution And the 12 apostles that is the 12 apostles summoned the full number of the disciples and said it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables Therefore brothers pick out from among you seven men of good repute full of the spirit and of wisdom or whom we will appoint to this duty and we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word and what they said please the whole gathering and then they chose seven that would do this what what is a lesson in this that god is teaching what does god teach through this well simply put 
and paul would paul would uh, expand on this much more in romans chapter 12 and then in ephesians chapter 4 as well god is a god who commissions god is a god who calls people to ministry god is not a god who expects a one man show from anybody god is calling his community to take part and he teaches the early church and the apostles right then at the start of this uh, this church that it's not going to be an apostles alone show it's not going to be a movement where it's all about these 12 apostles and all the rest get to sit back and and applaud the work that is going on no god says everybody come on all hands on deck you're going to start to do things others are going to start to get involved in this business in this movement and that's how uh, the uh, ministry roles and 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 ministry starts to get uh, decentralized and moved on to others because till that time the apostles were doing it all and they say we're not we can't do this we're going to appoint others to do this and so they appoint these people But look with me at what happens. It says they appointed. Uh, what kind of people did they appoint? What kind of people did the apostles ask for? It said people that are full of the spirit, full of wisdom. And then when they appointed, it tells you they appointed Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then it gives you the names of the other seven. And then it said, it says in verse six, these they set before the apostles and they prayed for them and they laid their hands on them as they served these tables. That's what they were going to do. They were going to ensure that the distribution of all the uh, the, the the material needs to different people, these uh, these seven that were chosen, were going to oversee that. But look what the apostles do they they when the men are chosen they don't just give them a job description and then send them on their way they lay hands on them and they pray over them the people they wanted chosen would be people full of the spirit of god and full of wisdom my brother my sister god not only commissions us to ministry in the church to tasks in the church but the tasks within his body that he calls us to do are holy unto him the church needs to recognize every role that a person plays is a holy role unto god it is a holy role it is a commissioning from god for god and so it is holy they esteemed the work that these men did they pray for them they look for men who will do uh, dil- diligently work with god's wisdom and god's spirit in them and this is where we get the office of deacon from from this story and then it unfolds bit more through paul's writings but the office of a deacon that would come alongside the elders of the church in in administering all the other tasks that need to get done my brother my sister this is a small picture of what the body of christ should be like Paul writes in Ephesians in chapter 4 and verse 16 as he talks about how you know we're all one body he says we all are one body and we all are uh, we find our connection in the head from whom we all grow we all are joined together but then it says each part has to play its role and when each part plays its role the body grows and builds itself up in love each part of the body needs to play its role needs to find its place and start to operate 
in what God has commissioned it to do. And you begin to see that happen in the early church and God teaches them a lesson. It's the church of God is not a one man show. The church of God is not about a celebrity at the heart of it all who's doing it all for everybody. The church of God was never designed to be that way. If at all there is any celebrity within the church, it is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Nobody else gets the glory. The church of God was never designed to be a one-man show. It was designed so that each finds their fulfillment, their calling, their commissioning in God and enacts or acts within how God wants them uh, or what God wants them to do in the body. Have you discovered that yet? Are you trying to discover that yet? Would you get involved in however God would have you involved? DBF Central may be never be a one-man show. May it never be about one person or just a select few individuals who do everything. That is not the model of God. God is a God who is holy. God is a God who is, who is sovereign. God is a God who commissions. But lastly, God is a God who communicates. Now, where do I get this from? And for me, this is something very close to my heart. It is in chapter 6. I'm going to leave the, the last part of chapter 6 for the speaker next week because it's all about Stephen. And, and, and it's a wonderful speech that Stephen gives. But his background is given towards the end of chapter 6. But here within the narrative of, of the apostles choosing seven to serve, you find the fourth lesson. That God is a God who communicates and the value of the communication of God. See, the apostles say, it is not right. This is verse 3. It is, or verse 2. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And then it, they say, a point seven, seven to do all of this. And we will give ourselves to prayer and to the teaching of the word. My brother, my sister, the church of God at the time needed to realize a valuable lesson for all the loving deeds that they would do, for all the uh, so-called social action that they would do, for all the humanitarian work that they would do, which they would do, for all the miracles that they would perform, for all the supernatural that they would experience, for all the wonders that God would do in their midst and that they would uh, use to bring the gospel to many. For all of that experience, there is no replacement for the word of God at the center. The word of God was given its due place. The centrality of the teaching of the word of God within that community is what allowed it to flourish, to thrive. Little wonder Paul says, faith comes from hearing and hearing the word. Little wonder James says, don't just be listeners, but be doers of the word. The word of God is so important. In a time like COVID and all that is going on around you right now, there in Delhi and there in India, there is so many things to do. And I praise God for, for, for DBF and for the way DBF has, the various congregations of DBF have partnered together along with others 
to bring encouragement in this time, to bring practical help in this time, to reach out, to drive across the city with oxygen cylinders, to reach out, to find hospital beds, to, to arrange funerals, to be there to comfort and to, to grieve with others. Amazing work you all have done and I'm so proud of you sitting so far away. I'm filled with pride when I think about all that you're, you all are doing. And yet, I want to warn you as much as I encourage you, I want to warn you in all of the busyness of the activity and as good and as blessed and as wonderful and as loving as the activity is. Never lose the centrality of the word of God within the community of God. Never be busy with all the activity for God that you neglect the teaching and the listening and the, the, the obeying of the word of God. My brother, my sister, all the activity without the word of God as its foundation is pointless. It is pointless. It is mere good works with no faith. And all the word of God without any activity being produced is pointless as James would say. Because it is faith without works, a dead faith. And so we hold in contention those two, the ability to hear the word and to hold the word as central in our life and yet the passion to live out the word in whatever context God calls us to. My dear brother, my dear sister, Learn from the apostles the value of the word of God. See, they teach the entire church the value of the word of God in that moment when they call them together and they say, listen, loving people, serving tables, there's nothing demeaning about it. It's not a lesser job, but we will not go into that at the cost of the teaching, the proclamation of the word. The word must receive its due place. I believe DBF has grown and has been blessed by the Lord because it has always held forth the word of light, the word of truth. And I pray that in all the activities that DBF does in the days to come, that they will forever be known for holding forth the word first and everything else second. Everything else will find its correct place, its correct time, its correct expression when we hold the word in its correct place. God is a God who communicates. What a privilege and an honor to communicate with him. Let's not neglect it. And so there you have it. Four lessons for that early church. Four lessons for a growing church. Four lessons for you, DBF Central, to learn and to use as you grow as well. God is a holy God. Let us fear him. Let us come before him with fear, with trembling, with trembling and with reverence. God is a sovereign God. Let us trust him. Let us trust his faithfulness, his sovereignty and his goodness in all situations. God is a commissioning God. Let us obey him. He calls us to serve 
in his body and to serve in his kingdom. Let us serve willingly. Let us serve gladly. Let us obey. And God is a communicating God. Let us listen to him. Let us give the word and prayer the due place, the due importance in our lives, in our homes, in our families, and in our community as a church. And as we do that, as we put those four lessons in place, may God bring the growth that he would love to bring, the much needed growth in our country at this time, so that people will know that Jesus Christ is Lord. Would you bow in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all that you've taught us. We thank you that you are a God to be feared. We thank you that you are holy and that we cannot fool you. We cannot hide from you. We cannot lie to you. Teach us that you are holy and you are to be feared. Thank you that you are sovereign. No matter what the newspaper headlines say, no matter what uh, the TV tells us, no matter what our heart tells us at times, Father, we thank you that you are sovereign. Help us to trust you. Father, thank you that you are a God who commissions. All that you want to achieve, you can achieve in and of, of yourself. You do not need us. And yet you are a God who chooses to use us, to involve us in your kingdom, to commission us. Oh, Father, help us to obey. Help us to live out your calling within your kingdom. And thank you, Father, that you are a God who communicates. You are a God who speaks and who invites us to speak to him in prayer. Help us, O oh Father, to give prayer and word their due importance in our community and in our life. Help us to give your word that importance so that we are never found people running all over the place, doing so much for you but not spending any time with you. Oh, Father, teach us, teach us that activity without intimacy with you is pointless. That true intimacy with you will lead us to the activity that you want us to be busy with, activity that will produce fruit, fruit that glorifies the Father in heaven. Oh, Lord, thank you for these valuable lessons for us as individuals, for us in our families, and even for us as a church. Help us to put them into practice, to live by them, and to see your hand move in our midst once again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.